I'm pleased to welcome back to the podcast my guest today. He was actually the main reason that this podcast came to be. The primary goal of our podcast is to provide some oral history surrounding key events and issues that have impacted Waterloo Region through the 70s to the present. And my guest today has been in the eye of the storm, quote, through much of that time. One could say that he's forgotten more about the recent history of Waterloo Region and local politics than any will ever know. But that would be wrong because he doesn't forget anything. I consider him our local historian. I'm pleased to welcome back my friend Ken Sealing, not only an old gray mayor, but an old gray chair. Good to be back. Good, good to have you back, Ken. You know, it's always and I have I have forgotten lots. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to admit it. We'll just let the legend live on. Uh, but it's always fun to talk to you because uh, I was thinking about this the other day. It's like talking to you is like sitting in a big old comfy couch. You just like to lounge around and and chit and chat and stuff. And and next thing you know, like time's just flown by, and you're saying, "Oh, wait, that that went by quick." So that's always a sign of a good conversation. Uh, so Ken, why don't you just give us a quick update on uh, some of the things you're up to these days. It's always interesting to see how you're still tapped into the community. Well, um, we've been spending a time splitting our time between home and the cottage, um, trying to find a sort of a suitable uh, pod, I guess, or bubble that we've had with right. the summer, particularly with some of the family. But now that the kids have gone back to school, we have really stepped back and we aren't uh, seeing any of our grandchildren other than other than by FaceTiming and wow. so, so we, we've been doing that but I've also been uh, doing a bit of work on the side I've sit on a, one of the hospital boards I'm uh, on the board of the new uh, United Way for the region of Waterloo and I'm also sitting on the board of the Alora Festival and Laura Singers so that keeps my finger in a few things and uh, yeah. I spend a lot of time talking to my friends and colleagues I try not to interfere in things too much but uh, I always keep Keep posted, and when you still live in the community, I mean, there's some. I guess there's some value in in moving moving away, as some people do when they retire. Because in this case, uh, having been in it for 40 plus years, um, everything that goes on is in my face daily, <laughs> so yes, it's yes. hard to be removed and, mm -hmm. and have an interest. But uh, by the same token, I respect the fact that other that I'm not there anymore, and so uh, others have to take on the mantle. So your tongue has a lot of teeth marks in it. <laughs> it sure does. <laughs> So, um, and uh, do you say hospital boards or just the one hospital board? Uh, the province uh, appointed me to the Grand River Hospital Board about a year ago. So I've been sitting on there. I have a two-year appointment. And, uh, yeah, yeah. To the hospital board. And, and you mentioned United Way. So it was interesting. I was just just uh, as an aside in the news recently, I guess they, they launched a campaign, uh, but with no dollar figure target. Right, because... As, I don't think there's any surprise that you know ways across Canada are, are you know sort of trying to re restructure themselves, recreate themselves because a lot of things that traditionally they did to raise money are no longer feasible. So, for example, workplace campaigns just people are working at home. There aren't places to work that, that kind of campaign and yeah. and uh, there, there's a real push on in the in the in the whole volunteer uh, nonprofit sector to raise funding. So, I think there are new challenges, and the United Way is sort of trying to recreate itself to. To meet needs because I think some people still forget that so many of the agencies in our community rely on United Way funding for their operations and oh, yeah. they're finding it tough to make money too. So um, I think that one of the things is how, how to get that message out to the community that there's such a broad range of services that, that United Way helps and supports 
that we really need to find a way to make sure that it survives and continues to be able to provide that support. So that's one of the challenges right now. And the, the other thing I was just thinking about too was um, in, in terms of, of meetings, I mean, as regional chair, when you're a regional chair, on an annual basis or monthly basis, like how often would you be out and about in the community going to events? Well, that's that's a big part of the job that disappeared, I think, for my successor. And uh, certainly uh, we tracked them one year, maybe it was an exceptional year, but we, I went to about four to 500 uh, events during that year, during that one year that we tracked them. So there's lots going on. And I think the role of the regional chair really is to try and pull the community together and get to know the community. So yeah. it, it makes, I'm sure for Karen and my successor, it's a much tougher job because she, she just can't get out to functions and see people and relate to people. So she's pretty, pretty limited to, um, to the formal meetings and working with staff. And uh, that, that's a big, uh, big drawback right now for the current situation. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, that, that's how you tap into what's going on. I, I, on a, on another podcast, I had mentioned that when I ran for mayor, I think one of the things that helped me out indirectly was the fact that the incumbent never got out to any events and didn't know the community, didn't know the people. And when you can't get out there and meet people and see what's happening, you're not tapped in. You don't understand what the needs wants and, and, and who the key players are in your community. Yeah, you need to know the pulse out there. And if you don't have a way of getting that and you can't rely, I mean, the counselors will have a sense of the pulse too, but you have to know it personally. You have to know the key players. Yeah. We won't get into any recent social media posts during Oktoberfest. Uh, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> but let's, uh, I just wanted to, we're going to talk about uh, police services in Waterloo Region from a historical perspective. Okay. But before we get into that, I thought, um, we should just touch on because it just dawned on me, uh, you know, we hear about Spanish flu and, and other prior pandemics and, uh, and obviously SARS was something that uh, consumed a lot of time and attention in the community. And I was thinking back to 08, 09 when I had my, when I was in private practice before becoming mayor. And um, I remember chatting with staff generally about, you know, it's, it's, keep calm and carry on in the sense that our business will keep moving on. We'll see what happens, see how things develop. And you would bump into sanitizer units in the hallways or the lobbies of office buildings. So what was it like as regional chair back then when you were dealing with that SARS issue here in Waterloo Region? Well, at the time, uh, the idea of a pandemic was sort of a new idea. I mean, we'd heard historically, I heard about them. It was the first time we'd seen that sort of thing happen. And and I think, as I recall back at that time, most people initially thought it was really a Toronto-based problem, but right. it had the potential of spreading out. And so increasingly, we were getting directives from public health and within, from the provincial public health and from our, from our own people that we needed to take steps to try and prevent spread in the community. I think very fortunately that um, at the time we got a, as a province of the country, we got on top of it very quickly. And I think the, the SARS, although it was serious at the time, it wasn't, it didn't develop to the extent that the, the COVID has. And so once that whole thing was done and some of the steps were measured were in place, we had we didn't have lockdowns, but we had you know hand sanitizing and I think some restrictions on visiting and things like that. Where there's an opportunity after the fact to at least create some planning for the future. And so uh, the region did with the area municipalities created a, a master plan in the event of a pandemic coming in the future. And so that's, yeah. what, in, that's what cooked into place this time around. Yeah, because I don't think people realize that Regional, is it, and correct me if I'm incorrect, because I know we did touch on this when we were together on regional council, that the regional council is the, is it the health board of the, or the right. region, or what is in, it? In, in, in the regions, the, uh, the boards of health were just 
the formal boards of health were disbanded and the regional council became the board of health. So what regional council sits and deals with health matter, they're sitting as the board of health. That's uh, something that was recently been under discussion because the, this new government had wanted to take public health away from municipalities. And for years, we've been fighting a strong battle to say we need a, a, a holistic approach to public health. And it just isn't public health people. It ties into engineering. It ties into social services. Right. It ties into a whole range of things. And so there's been a battle going on for the last two years to try and maintain public health at the municipal level. And uh, so we'll see what happens when this, when this finishes off. But uh, it's uh, been very good that they can pull it all together. So prior to 2008, was there, you said there was a health board of medical people? Well, no, there, there wasn't. There, uh, after the, the SARS event, we pulled together a, a planning exercise to say, yep. we have another uh, epidemic, what would we do? How would we, how would we tackle this? How would we manage this uh, from a municipal level for the municipal functions? Yeah. That plan was put in place for following 2008. Yeah. So, and what you're pointing out is that from a, a municipal level or regional level, because you're tapped into infrastructure, social services, and other things, it's the most logical level to have this sort of uh, health board at that level because you, you can provide a more coordinated effort. That's right. And there's, there's a synergy between all the services doing it together. And, and also people are feeding the ground. So if your board of health is operating out of Hamilton, for example, you really don't have the, uh, the kinds of... Um, oh. A community input and uh, activity that's available too because the, what they're trying to do is consolidate them into large areas and large territories and oh is this like the lynn that you the, where they're consolidating the lens is that what you're talking about oh that's 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 going on at the same time oh <laughs> so it's all part of the process that they're looking at doing right now and i think there's some resistance to some of it uh, particularly in the public health area yeah i think um COVID's probably made the current provincial government realize a lot of things that might not be done the way they had originally intended to do them. Well, it's, uh, I, I think there are arguments in this case, somebody would say, well, we should have one person in Toronto directing everybody on the field, but and then there are others who are saying, you get a much better response if you do local planning and you can yeah. deal with the issues locally and, and you're right on top of them. So yeah. uh, in my viewpoint, uh, it's best left at the local level. So prior to 08, then, we didn't really have a pandemic playbook in the community? Not that, no. Was it something that was ever thought about, or just this, it's like... I, I think 2008, SARS was the first real pandemic in my, my memory of anything. Yeah. I mean, there was polio back in the 50s, but that wasn't, right. uh, that wasn't seen as a pandemic. It was seen as a, a serious issue, and I think it was dealt with at a provincial level, not a, not a local level. Right. And, and flu is something that's recurring every year that's dealt with, but it's not in this coordinated, other than flu shots. I remember getting some flu shots yeah. at the region, but um, not in this pandemic that we're dealing with. No, because because flus, although some that they can be severe and, and flus do cause death, they're, they're sort of the norm, normal course of events. And uh, people just took them in stride as a seasonal uh, illness that came right. along. And that's yeah. why flu shots came into being, but nothing on the scale of COVID, which was which spread as extremely rapid and, and difficult to contain. And uh, in its initial stages, it hammered uh, uh, nursing homes and uh, long-term care facilities yeah. uh, spread easily, initially among seniors, but now younger people as well. Yeah. So it's, a, yeah. So, so the play, so the, so post SARS then uh, a, a playbook was developed to deal with pandemics in the future and, and to the best of your knowledge that's that was the foundation of what was done going forward under right. covid right 
uh, and even so, some of that, some of that was, um, there's some things that can be done locally, some things needed provincial uh, direction or provincial legislation right, or do. Right. So, but I tried to, tried to marry everything that was within local control. So yeah. that if this happened, this is what we do, this is what we can do within the range of municipal responsibilities or abilities legally. And uh, so that there was a coordinated effort doing it, so you wouldn't have something going on in Kitchener and then North Dunford would be something doing something different, right. or right. doing something different to try and make sure that everybody was dealing on the same from the same page. Yeah, one one place to look to to start anyway, and then you develop from there. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. All right. Well, thanks for for sharing that. I, I know we didn't, we hadn't talked about that, and I kind of just <laughs> threw that at you. So, but see, there you go. Like I said, local historian. <laughs> So we're going to talk about uh, police services in, in Wiley Region from the historical context because I thought it'd be interesting to uh, understand how uh, we, we came to have the services we have today, you know, and, and because, you know, some people say, well, you've got one uh, police services in the community, but you have still uh, fractured or multiple fire departments mm -hmm. in the community. And I think for some people, they kind of see these two things as emergency services, why aren't they all the same? It's like ambulance services. You don't have individual no. ambulance uh, or, or you know, services or, or, or uh, paramedics in each of the seven municipalities. Right. So it was my understanding that this, this uh, combining came about in, in 73, the creation of our Waterloo Regional Police. Uh, well, back then, I guess, force it was called, or it now services. Yep. So they prior prior to uh, the municipal reforms of the late '60s and early '70s, uh, people either had their own police force, each municipality each had its own police force, or they had OPP policing. And uh, so in this region, there were um, so there was Kitchener, Waterloo, Galt, Preston, Hespler, Elmira, Waterloo Township. Did I say New Hamburg? Yeah, New Hamburg and Bridgeport. Uh, Bridgeport, yeah. All had separate police forces and the rest of them were covered off by the Ontario Provincial Police. So <laughs> there's this multiplicity of, of jurisdictions and, and policing and, uh, and, and different levels of competency as well. So you can imagine some of the yeah. smaller yeah. ones would have three, four, two, two or three uh, police, uh, police officers compared to the others. And so you never, you didn't have the ability to have a combination of resources to for specialization and uh, right, and, and was it like uh, was it like Dukes of Hazard? If I crossed from Kitchener into Waterloo, they couldn't touch me. <laughs> I'm not sure, but uh, I, I mean, I, I think they, they tried to cooperate, but we had this multiplicity of police forces, and so it made a yeah. lot of sense as part of the regional regional framework to to pull them all together into one regional force. Well, yeah, that that uh, as I was researching that and looking it up, I was amazed that that. Uh, um, that we had that many disparate police forces, plus the OPP operating, uh, I think North Dumfries had the OPP, so I think all the townships, the current townships had OPP forces. Uh, certainly uh, Woolwich and um, Woolwich and Wilmot and Wellesley, I think had OPP, as I recall. Yeah, and it might have been North Dumfries as well. So combining all of that though, did that just happen? I mean, in 73, you were, were you an elected official in 73? No, I wasn't. So you were just a uh, teacher in Elmira? That's, I, yeah, I was teaching at that time, yep. Were you? Okay. So, and you got first elected, what year was that, that you got first elected? 76, 77, I think. Okay, so shortly thereafter. So you would yeah. have been aware of, of all of this going on yeah. at the time. Right. 
Um, was this all part of the creation of the region and therefore they created the police force at the same time? Right. So, they, so the way the province did it in those days was the province actually sent in a commissioner or somebody to, uh, to review the, uh, the situation and make recommendations on what the future governors would look like. And there was, there was pretty general consensus that something needed to be done. Uh, there was not right opposition. There were different scenarios as to what might be done. So at the end of the day, the, um, the, the, the province decided, picked a plan, and they actually wrote legislation and imposed it. So uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't a matter of, you know, here's, here are your choices, here's what you, pick what you want to do locally. Uh, they had their hearings, their, uh, their, their, the, the commissioner uh, did his thing and made recommendations back, and then the province implemented. There wasn't any uh, opportunity to change the Change. Was the was the commissioner a local appointee or somebody out of Toronto or out of Toronto? Makes it easier that way. Yeah. And that's local. I'm having a memory lapse, I, I should know his name. His name is right there, but I just can't remember it right now. <laughs> um, anyway, so the, the, and and part of that they dictated what was going to happen. So they set up the structure. They did they 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 chose which amalgamations would take place. They chose which services would move to the new regional government. Um, they chose uh, uh, this model for policing, uh, those sorts of things. So that was all done and imposed. Legislation was passed in 1972. There was an interim uh, regional council uh, elected in 1972, the provisional council, and uh, they, they supervised, Jack Young was appointed early on, and they, they supervised the creation of the, um, of the new municipality and uh, where it was going to go and also the creation of the police force. And the, the interim was all uh, members from the various municipalities, the seven municipalities. Though there were elections, there were elections held, as I recall, in '72 to to, to uh, elect the interim council. I oh, check so the they so, weren't appointees from the various municipalities. No, no, they were. They, as my recollection is they were elected, but I, I should have checked my history today. Just That's to make okay, no problem. Good. So I guess that begs one of the questions then that comes to mind is why wasn't the uh, fire department amalgamated at the same time as police services? Well, there, there's nothing in writing, but my, my uh, understanding and talking to people and taking a look back at that time was that uh, it was the police forces were, there were full, or sorry, the fire departments were full-time fire departments in some of the uh, urban municipalities, Kitchener, Waterloo, Galt. Um, I can't speak to Preston and I think Hesper was volunteer, but I'm not sure. And in the townships, they were all volunteer fire department. Yeah. So at that time, there was no model which allowed you to mix full-time firefighters with volunteers. Oh. So I think the, the concern was that if you, if you impose a regional fire department, everybody would have full-time firefighters. And certainly the real municipalities didn't want to have, um, full, they didn't want the cost of having full-time fire departments. They wanted to continue with volunteers. So that there was no model for doing that at that time. It's since been developed and they exist today, but they didn't in those days. And so I think they were just trying to avoid, they're trying to keep volunteer fire departments and avoid the cost of having everybody full time. Right. Yeah, I remember like, you know, I grew up in Waterloo and then moved out to North Dumfries. And when I got to North Dumfries, um, I found out it's a volunteer fire department. And I thought, oh, that's quaint. I thought it was just like, you know, small town, uh, rare situations because you have this, but you soon learn there are more volunteer firefighters in this country by almost a factor of eight to one, I think, or seven to one or eight to one, than there are full-time or paid full-time firefighters. Right. And, you know, there was a real campaign on the part of 
the professional firefighters unions to try and <laughs> take over more and more. And there was a lot of resistance. And in fact, until just the last year, um, you recall there was this, the, the second Hatters thing where yeah, the, about uh, impact on your disability insurance. So what they also wanted to prevent, they were any any full-time firefighter, if he volunteered, could be lose his job. So right. Now, I think the provincial government now has stepped in to disallow that from happening, but uh, yeah. that carried on for some time. Yeah, which was a real shame that it was an issue for a while because, you know, look at the volunteer firefighters do a great job. They're training all the time uh, to stay up to speed and... Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's amazing. You know, these are your friends, your families, members, your neighbors who are risking their lives at times, you know, to deal with a barn fire or, you know, some, some major, even industrial fires that they have to deal with. And it's nice to be able to call upon the services of an experienced firefighter uh, from the full-time service who would be able to lend their knowledge and skill to complement what's going on in the volunteer force. So, and, and the volunteer fire services have been, have provided great service and yeah. service. They're, they're highly trained. Uh, I think in some areas have been having difficulty getting enough volunteers. I can't say if it's within this region, but across the province generally. So uh, yeah. reducing, the, reducing the pool of available people was difficult, but I think that's, has, I've been out of the loop for a while, but I think that has, been changed now. I think the province has legislated to allow it to happen. Ted Arnott, uh, well, that was he was the champion of that for many years. Okay, good. You know, success, uh, but the, when the government came into power, I think they, they put it through, as I recall. Yeah, and I, I know especially there was a the concern for, for some of the full-time guys that if, you know, if they developed uh, uh, an illness, because maybe they dealt with a chemical fire someplace, right? And then there was an issue, well, did you get it as a, as a full-time firefighter or did you get it as a volunteer firefighter? Yeah. And those could be very difficult to sort out, just like that recent series about Uniroyal and, and the illnesses that the workers yeah. uh, had from that but, and workers' comp, uh, compensation issues. But yeah, it's nice that that got sorted out so it opens that up. And I think you have to open it up because over time, it just seems that generally, you know, when you look at volunteer organizations, the average age is getting older and older. Young people are not necessarily volunteering uh, for whether it's a Rotary or the you know Knights of Columbus or the Kinsmen or what have you, and I think that might be um, moving uh, shifting the touch to the, the firefighter side, especially as townships get larger. Mm. I mean, when I when I look at the growth of what's happening in North Dumfries, it's phenomenal, and I know you know other areas uh, have to even uh, staff more than one facility, which air, North Dumfries has one. They take. Uh, um, uh, Wilmot or Woolwich, for example, or Wellesley. I think Wellesley has three stations themselves, and they're even as you know similar size to North Dumfries. Well, I, th I think a lot has changed over the over the last, since the regions have been created, and one of the things that changed that has taken place has been the fact that now there are mixed models where they have full time and volunteer fire departments mixed, because volunteers are are paid. I mean, it's just it's, it's a small amount, but they are paid. Yeah. But but, there, but the, the models now exist, so you can have a combined type of fire department. So then that, that raises the question, um, why not a single fire service uh, if, in fact, now these two models can be mixed? So that's a question for other people to resolve now, but it's one that I, right. I think, I think in the, when the regional reform agenda was discussed over the last few years, that was I always came to the top of the list. Yeah, I think the, the, the Hamilton amalgamation seems to have pushed that whole firefighter volunteer and paid together because... I remember during the last uh, municipal campaign, 
running for regional chair, and I met with uh, uh, the the labor, the Christian Labor Union, CLAC, yeah. uh, and and they had mentioned uh, when I asked them who their members were included, it, it, a small portion of it included firefighters from Hamilton, which included the the paid full time and the volunteer, and it came about through that. Uh, amalgamation. Uh, if, you, if you go through the uh, municipalities, particularly around the GTA, around Toronto, a lot of those that are with their southern, their, their southern, oh, right. southern stations are sufficiently populated that they can have full-time firefighters, but the northern ones aren't. They have mixed models, and they they work. Right. Yeah. So, so, um, so I, th I think that something. If, the irony is that there are three emergency services, and they all relate one to another: police, EMS, paramedic service. Yeah. And firefighting, and so two, two, two of the three are at the regional level. It doesn't make sense to have, but have have uh, a third not at the regional yeah. level, and that would allow for better coordination. Uh, would end the disputes about the questions about dispatch, who's dispatching, who's doing what, right? What's the order returning to calls? All those sorts of things, and they could be all sort of dealt with at, at the regional level. However, any, that's, that's a discussion for another day. <laughs> yeah, another day because on prior days, that's like uh, amalgamation discussions. It, uh, yeah. it there's certain municipalities that it's a, it's almost it's a no go. Yeah, for some right. more more from a political point of view than from a right right the politics exactly the politics of it rears its head. Yeah. Maybe it needs another commissioner coming into and a top down like most things, right? I mean, I think. If you're talking about just briefly on amalgamation, I think you've you've said to me if it's going to happen, it's going to happen by uh, what osmosis or something like it's incrementally going to happen unless it's forced from the top down. Yeah, it, uh, municipalities and services don't reform themselves. That's the lesson. Like for forty years in business, I will tell you that it never happened voluntarily. <laughs> it's always a wailing and gnashing of teeth. Um, so with the police services, then okay. So within our community. Um, you know, we have the police force or police services, uh, um, and we have a police board. So talk about the police board for a moment there. So policing in, in Canada, by and large, historically, has always uh, tried to avoid the American model, where, by and large, there's political, political control of policing, whether through, through elections or through uh, mayors and councils controlling policing to try and keep the politics out of out of policing and, right. and keep fine line. So that's why in Canada the model uh, the model for uh, policing has always been um, governance is separate, uh, and so you can't have you can't have a mayor firing a police chief. You can't have a mayor telling the police, "Well, I want you to issue tickets on that road up there." <laughs> right. <laughs> over right. Here. Uh, it's what you, we have a strictly a, a system of law. And it's supposed to be applied fairly and equally without influence, undue influence from anybody. So, so the government and its wisdom over the years, and I think this is sort of a British model too, comes out of the British system, basically says uh, we have to have separate governance and we can't have undue political influence on policing. So that's the model in Canada, and that's the one that's here. So yeah. the system in Ontario has uh, has been. Um, where, where there is an Ontario police, where there are local police forces, there is a governing body, a police board or a police commission, as they were called at one time, uh, which was structured or set up to, to provide civilian governance to police. But even even its ability to do things is restricted because um, the rules and regulations and legislation regarding policing are set by the province. Right. And so any any kind of governance that's done by a local board or police commission is done within a framework established by the province. And very clear, very clearly, 
very clearly police members of police board and police commissions are told it is illegal and improper for you to interfere in the in the operations of the police force you may not yeah. do that so what we're talking about is and really we've got three or we could say four groups i'll just say that there's uh, the police force itself which has the chief overseeing their operation you've got the police board which and we'll talk about it's comprised of seven members right now right you've got your local council and then you have the province so it's sort of like four different parts to this thing each with their yep. own respective roles yeah and the police board cannot tell the police chief what to do on a day-to-day -day basis no they, they may not interfere in the operations and if you uh, if you as a police board member or as a board um, start to instruct the police chief on operations or any police officer on operations you can be removed very quickly from office right so what what is the police board does then is it it's sort of like some general guidance uh how would you describe their role so the, the police board sort of set the, the problem sets out a framework for policing they have rules and regulations and say these are the things that you need to do these are the things you need to take into consideration and some of those things you develop policies at the local level how they're implemented on a broad basis on a policy basis and uh, beyond that then it's up to the chief to implement it beyond that and so their role is really a policy role they they, they also have other duties for example they they get to hire um the chief the yeah. chief, their employee they get to hire the chief uh, i can't speak for other boards but in our board they, they have a, a role in in the, the selection of the deputy chiefs and um and also maybe uh then they, they th that's part of their role uh ultimately they the police chief is accountable to them uh within a frame within a framework if they just can't really right. like, yeah, we want to get rid of you goodbye and, and do that there are there's there's a ways of doing of, of dealing with personnel issues that are within the provincial legislation so uh so they they can do that they they deal with issues like such as property uh budgets Police board can set the budget. The police chief cannot unilaterally set the budget. They have to. They set the budget and they set what the categories are within the budget. Um, they they deal with property. They deal with facilities. They deal with radio system. You know all the tools that a police force needs to needs to operate are within the realm of the police board as well. Well, let me and ask so, you one thing that came to mind. So, for example, uh, patrol. Okay, police on the street, like in the downtown core or something like that. Right. Can the board say we would like to see a larger police presence in our communities or uh, and then the chief would see about how to implement that? Or is that just something that the chief decides will be done or not based on the budget that he or she has? The um, at the very end of the day, the, the board can't direct operations, but the board can have a discussion with the chief about what operations should look like. Okay. And I mean, any any good senior manager will discuss with their board what they what they like and don't like, and uh, what what their interests are. And so that kind of discussion would take place fairly regularly, I think, with with the chief. Um, and uh, but at the end of the day, it's the chief who operationalizes things. And so uh, if you know if there was a conflict between the chief, the board wanted things to go in a certain way, and there was a conflict with the chief. Um, that could end up in some difficulty in the relationship between the two of them. And ultimately, if, if, if the uh, chief was going in a totally different direction from the board, the board would at least, now I've been out of it for a while, so there was an op a mechanism where the board could call in the Interior Police Commission and say, yeah. take a look at what's going on here. We think that things aren't right. And 
and they could do something like that. Okay, so that's how the, the police would have to go, or the board would have to go to a provincial organization. If, if in fact, they wanted to dispense with the chief or, yeah, know, that's the way, yeah. I, that's the way I understood it anyway. Well, historically in Waterloo region, did, did you have, did you run into that? I mean, you've been on the board, okay, when were you first on the police board? Uh, I went on in 70, oh boy, 70, uh, 80, 80, I was on from 81 to 80, 80 to 85. And then I went off the board when I became chair for six or seven years. Although I maintain a close contact with the board, I was off yeah. the board. And then when the province changed the legislation to put the head of council on back on, then I went back on again. So I went back on in um, 85, 85 about, about, about 90, 91, 92, somewhere. Yeah, early 90s until yeah. you retired. Yeah. Okay. So from that vast experience, was there ever a time that the board did run into a situation where they had to have the police chief removed or the, a conflict? Well, only one time was the Ontario Police Commission involved, and that was during the uh, the Sid Brown years. Oh, okay. Management, and so that was, uh, and I, I can't recall whether the province imposed that or whether it was a re request of the board, but the Ontario Police Commission did come in and did a held, held an inquiry on, on that. Just give a, just a brief synopsis of what, because a lot of people won't necessarily know what that is about, especially, you know, new people listening, but what was that situation about? Well, when the, when the regional police force was, was formed in 72, 73, uh, Chief Heinrich was appointed. He was the Kitchener chief at that time. He was appointed as the chief of the new force. And um, so, and that, but he died in office a few years later. Oh. So the police board, the police board uh, went to hire a new chief and uh, may, for, I won't get into why they did it, but they decided to hire outside and they hired Sid Brown, who was the head of the police union in Toronto. Oh. And, and uh, that created some friction within the force. And uh, there was a, um, th the creation of a, a tactical unit within the police force, which uh, raided the henchman's headquarters. Uh, people leaked photographs of what happened at that event. Um, there have been some other concerns raised about what was going on in the force. And the Ontario Police Commission came in and did an investigation and an inquiry and recommended a number of things. And uh, flowing out of that inquiry then the board of the day fired uh, Brown, and the the rest is history. It's an ongoing battle for a number of years. But yeah. uh, so that's the, that's the only time the Ontario Police Commission, that I'm aware of, was involved with Waterloo Region. And and would what would that have been early '80s or when was that? That happened in um, that happened about 1970, 78, 79, okay, somewhere. So late late '70s, and then it extended into the '80s in terms of. It, Whatever legal disputes. Yeah, it went on the, in, with, within the courts or the firing for about four or five years after yeah. that. Okay. Resolved and settled. So it's interesting though, uh, you know, we always say, wow, if if they had cameras back then when I was young, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. yeah here's a, something that happened in late 70s where photos got leaked that resulted in some difficulty for the community to have to deal with, right? Well, I, I think, think, you know, without getting into a lot of the detail, there were those people in the forest who felt that the direction they were going was not appropriate. And obviously ah. somebody leaked the, the, the photographs to make the point. Right, right. Um, because there were, there were other issues going on at the same time that came sure. ahead as a result of that. Yeah. Okay, interesting. So then, so um, so back to the board for a second. And so I, I'm going to start with the composition of it now and work backwards. Currently it's seven people on the board, correct? Right. 
And so what are those seven people? Who are they? So uh, I stepped back. Originally, it was five people on the board. Yeah, I was going to work back to that. But anyway, go ahead. Five. It was five people. There were, were three provincial appointees and, a, um, and two appointed from regional council as okay. a funding body. Uh, over the years, there was a lot of uh, toing and froing with the province, saying municipalities paid virtually 100% of the cost of policing, yet the province controlled that. That spending. Oh, by their three appointees. Their three appointees, they control major majority. And so uh, during, I think it was during the Harris years, if I'm not mistaken, there was a bit of a, on their part, there was a bit of a compromise. They didn't want to break, they didn't want to give up the idea that their, uh, the councils actually ran police forces. They want to maintain this separation, this distance. So their compromise was, uh, we'll appoint three, you will appoint three people from council, including the head of council, or two and two or three and three, depending on the size of your board. Right. And you, you can appoint a, you can appoint the fourth person. Uh, the council can appoint the fourth person, but it can't be a politician. It has to be a lay person. So the okay. current makeup now is three political appointees from the province, three appointees, including the, the chair from the region, and then one lay person appointed by regional council who is, whose appointment is subject to regional council reappointment um, at that time. So. It, in essence, gave them the regional council majority vote, but really, it was and it wasn't majority vote. So, right. But the the three appointees from the province, though, would they wouldn't they generally be like local individuals who are lay people, or is that? Well, they're, well, they're, yeah, they're they're all all local people, and um, and uh, you know, quite frankly, they for for a long time they were known to the government. <laughs> okay. And, Sure, like, uh, like uh, you mean they might have been the same political persuasion? Well, I would, yeah, <laughs> that's probably a good way of describing it. <laughs> and then, then, then there was a, for a period of time, there was a, a appointment or application process. And um, so, but that didn't, that still didn't, at the end of the day, the government made the final choice of who the people were to be. Right. The odd, the odd time when I was an officer would be sometimes and the government would have called me and say, what do you think of this person? Is this person appropriate? Uh, but, but that was the, uh, that was not the normal practice. Very seldom okay. that happened. <laughs> and, you, and you'd say no, but they would appoint the person anyway. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, um, so was there ever uh, a situation where you felt that the province was, uh, dictating how these people were making their decisions? Like, was there ever a conflict within the board that way? No, I, no, I never had that experience. Uh, there was no, never any control by the province of, of their appointees that I'm aware of. So the expansion happened, was it to get the, the head of council onto the board or why, why was there the expansion? Well, I, th I think one of the concerns at the time was that in, in the single tier cities where they had police forces, the mayor automatically went on. Uh -huh. But in, in the regions, the, the head of council wasn't automatically on. The head of council had to buy with other council members to get on the police board. Yeah. Uh, when when that council was supposed was uh, was the fine for the what supplied all the money for the police board. Right. So, so I think I think the province wanted to try and equalize things with the with the single tier cities that existed. Yeah. So the province then uh, didn't have say over the layperson that the regional council would appoint. No, not at all. Okay. So and did that resolve this issue about feeling like you were spending you're paying all the money but not having any control? Well, I, th I think it went part way, but it wasn't wasn't totally what municipalities wanted, but it was the best they could do because I, I think it was a battle. They didn't, 
at the end of the day, they didn't think they were going to win. So it was a, it was yeah. a compromise. So let's talk about then regional council's role for a second here, because I mean, currently the police budget makes up about one third of the regional property tax bill. Right. Not right. one third of the expenses, but one third of the property tax bill. Right, right, right. right. Property tax bill. I'm not going to get into the nuances of what that exactly means uh, in tax talk. Right. Because I don't have, uh, Mr. Dyer here beside me to guide me through it, but uh, <laughs> like back in regional council days. Um, but so the, the general sentiment is, well, regional council, okay, so you've got, you've got the chief doing the day-to-day, -day, you've got the board providing some policy uh, concepts or broad stroke uh, um, ideas for the, for community policing or what have you. But so what the regional councils, when I first got there was like, you can either vote yes or no, or, or you, you couldn't do anything about right. it. And I, I appreciate there's things you can't do, but there are some things you can do. So why don't you so explain what, the role? So regional council provides the financing for the regional police. But what happens is uh, legally, the budget is delivered to the regional council. The regional council can comment on it, ask questions about it, uh, can send it back for further consideration. But at the end of the day, they either vote for it or they don't. They can't, they can't pick and choose in the budget. They can't say, well, we want you to shift money from this category over to this category. That's an operational issue. That's the responsibility of the police board, uh, which who works with the chief. Uh, so, uh, in our region, we've never had a time that I'm aware of that <clears throat> the regional council has rejected the police budget. <clears throat> they've, they've been different times when the, when the police chief, and there's always been, particularly since the, um, since the, the early 90s, uh, a, a really good working relationship between the regional administration and the police administration and regional council and the police, police board. And so there have been times uh, when, the, the, well, there always is every year, the, the chief comes to regional council talks about the issues facing them. Here's, here's our budget. Here's how we're proposing to deal with things. Uh, we've, heard from, we've heard from various voices that you're interested in this. This is how we're proposing to deal with this. And they have that discussion in an, in an open council meeting. It's not a closed council meeting. It's not right. open. And then, the, then sometimes uh, when there's been cr crunchier, tough years, the council will say, Mm, can you find a way of shaving another half a percent off your budget request because it's big on our it's a big impact on our levy and usually what will happen is the police board and the chief will take it back and generally speaking they've they've been able to do those sorts of things uh, but at the end of the day when the final budget comes back the board the police the council either has to approve it or uh reject it in which case then the ontario police civilian police commission or whatever it's called now would come in and, and, and uh, be the arbiter right. at the end so of the day. Just, just that's happened, that's, sorry, that's happened in other municipalities, but it hasn't Yeah, yeah. Out. So I just wanted to touch on that for a second. But so so the so it comes back, regional council basically approves, we'll say the envelope of cash, yeah. so to speak, yep. that can be spent. And then the, the police chief can determine how that's going to be spent with and the board provides some overall general direction ideas about oh, what they oh, want to yeah, although in all the presentation regional council, council has seen the breakout of the budget. They're just, they're just not giving a, a Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to imply that. No, no, no. You're right. I mean, the chief is saying, this is how I'm going to spend what I'm asking you for in, the, in these areas. But again, 
regional council can't say, well, they might say like it or not, but they, they can't say, well, take, take, uh, you know, uh, $10 million. Well, anyway, we won't get into all of that, but it's it, regional no. council is restricted in terms of what they can do, uh, in that approval. That's right. Okay. Only the police board could do that. Now, if regional council wanted to say, well, we're going to, uh, reduce the overall, we want to reduce the overall budget. Like you said, the shaving in the past, there's been cooperation yeah. in terms of coming to that number. If, if both sides are entrenched, what happens then? Well, if you come to a conflict, uh, as has happened in other municipalities, the Ontario Police Commission, or whatever it's called today. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think it's the Ontario oh, Civilian Police Commission now. Yeah, so they, they, it would go before them. Okay, so that's like, now have you ever been involved in, in that sort of a hearing? No, never, never. It's, it's like an arbiter, arbitration hearing, basically. Yeah. And so you would have to, the council would have to put up an argument saying why this, why this number should be right. 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 Board come back and say, well, you know, we can't, can't do this. We can't have this many people on the street without this kind of money to do this, or we right. can't have this kind of operation, or we'll have to shut down this kind of service. And, and the civilian, this board will then decide whether that's reasonable or unreasonable. They, they always, uh, the, the, uh, the language is really rather strange. I would say talk about ability to pay, <clears throat> you know, municipal councils will say, well, they're not considering the ability to pay. This is quite often the case in police arbitrations. That's how it is. But it's um, it's a it's a bit of a moot point because the tax base is rather flexible, um, and so I, I think the issue is really uh, is is it a reasonable request? But as I said, we in Waterloo Region have never been faced with that issue. Yeah. The um, and just to touch on that for a second, uh, police pay is something that comes up as a as a question. Uh, you know what, what's going on out there but aren't we sort of um stuck we're sort of there's like we're the tip of the tail that's being wagged that tells us where things are going to go in terms of percentage increase or retention pay by other jurisdictions and then it sort of filters through across the province right well both police and firefighters have compulsory binding arbitration as part of their part of their legislation legislative framework and so what what happened both in firefighting and in policing was that uh, whoever settled first or had a settlement imposed, that sort of set the trend for bargaining right down, right down the line. So even though a salary increase would be a percent or two percent higher than the general labor force in the municipalities got, <clears throat> if that was in one one place for us, it just sort of filtered its way right through. And so that that often put pressure on on police budgets. Uh, quite, well, during my time there, and then the last few years have been. <laughs> in the last few years have been much more um, in line with the general settlements, but there were years when the settlements uh, or the con working conditions were were thought to be uh, a little on the rich side relative to the other well, sectors. But we were stuck, weren't we? I mean, if, if Toronto gave 3% or the police services were able to obtain 3% out of Toronto, and then you have hearings uh, along the way, Wellington, Peel, yep. out of the region, we were stuck with the three percent probably you couldn't get one percent it's pr pr pretty hard i think most most police boards who uh, came along a little later felt that, that there wasn't much chance of, of going to arbitration going the cost and the bad labor relations going to arbitration when you knew what the arbitrator was going to do anyway because the pattern was already set because this concept you mentioned that this ability to pay was that a factor that they they didn't consider because it wasn't part of the legislation to consider that factor or what was 
So, so the ability to pay was actually part of the legislation, but uh, the reality is that um, it was, a, to, from where I sat, it was a meaningless concept because uh, all you had to do was raise the taxes a quarter of a, a quarter of a percent, you could pay that extra money easily. And so that didn't, the whole overall scheme of things, it didn't seem like a lot, but it, uh, it was significant money. When you, when you sort of juxtapose the regional budget uh, the region, rest of the regional budget and the police right. budget. There were many in the in the 90s and early 2000s. You know, um, we were actually seeing where we were shaving regional programs to try and and keep the overall property tax down because the police budget was consuming a greater and greater share of the regional. Right, tax. right. And, and and at the same time, during that period of time, you're dealing with like the Harris downloads that were happening on top of everything else. But this predates Harris. This this goes back right into the, the to the um, uh, the liberal NDP because it was all the same. Uh, the police unions and the firefighters unions have always been extremely strong influences. Yeah, government regardless of the party. So for the arbitrators, parity amongst the various services was more important than the issue of ability to pay because they felt communities right. could pay. Yep. And that's where you got retention bonuses from too. Right, well, the retention bonuses came about because they, they gave them in Toronto and the case was made, well, we're having a hard time retaining police officers in Toronto. Um, the irony of it was that when we when people went back and took a look at, at retention in Toronto, it was the same as elsewhere, but it was an argument that, that carried the day in Toronto. And <laughs> once, it, once it was there in Toronto and then, um, uh, we never understood why, but the Ontario Provincial Police came along and accepted it right after that. So once it went between Toronto and the OPP, it just rolled right through the entire system. And once once one domino fell, like you said, all the rest just came tumbling down. Because we, we certainly never had any trouble retaining police officers. So let me just ask you, I just wanted to touch base. You mentioned um, uh, some of the police, former police chiefs, uh, two of them anyway. Uh, you said Chief Heinrich. What was his first name? I, I'm sorry, I don't know. Well, I think it was Wolf. Okay. And then there was Sid Brown. And then who followed Sid Brown? Harold Bassey. Yeah. Harold had been the chief in Waterloo prior to amalgamation and was a deputy uh, under Heinrich and under Brown. And then he uh, he became the next chief. And did a, a great job of pulling that force together. Laid the groundwork uh, for, actually, it was actually Harold, who laid the groundwork for community-based policing, which his successor was Larry Graville, and uh, Harold had had done a fair bit of work with Larry, uh, and Larry worked on that. So when Larry became chief, that Larry just took that whole concept and expanded it uh, much, much more broadly. And then uh, when Larry retired after about twenty years, um, it's Matt Matt, Matt Matt became the chief, and. Then he went off to be the deputy minister and uh, was succeeded by Brian Larkin. Right. So um, when you talk about community policing, uh, is that that the the, the 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 citizens on patrol program or what? Uh... Well, it was it was more a function of instead of moving police all around the community on a regular basis, keep people there, our relationship with community oh. organizations, gotcha. watches, all those sorts of things that sort of brought the police right into the community. And yeah. made the community <clears throat> participants in policing. I think I'll have Brian Stortz on someday to talk about the cops program, the citizens on patrol, especially with the whole downtown Kitchener core, right. the 
the bad old crack house days and, and all of that that was uh, yep. that was happening so and and when a police chief is selected that's the board does that hiring as, as a board or how is that yeah how has that been done the board the board makes that decision and, the, and that's the board hire is the, is the yeah. chief and you mentioned also the deputy chief as well well we were always involved in, in interviewing and being part of the selection of the deputy chief at least in our board i um had a note down about uh we were talking we we're talking about budget and i mentioned the budget before and obviously the tax base is the largest portion of the revenue to to fund that um i guess um ticketing uh, would be another source uh those uh well, speed, speed no, there's, there's no relationship between ticketing and police revenues okay i think that's a good point why don't you just expound on that a bit so until until the year 2000 all ticket revenues went to the province and uh then as part of the uh, transfer services that took place between the province and the municipalities right. in order to try and sort of level out the new expenditures that the province was downloading with giving some new revenue sources the province turned over the poa the provincial offenses act revenues right to to local governments in the case of our region uh, that came to the regional municipality of Waterloo, which operates at the poa courts and that goes into general revenue because we're very careful not to say that uh, we, we never want people seem to say, well, right. issue more tickets, you get more money for the policing. Well, they don't, right. they don't get any money out of that. Yeah. And we don't want to link that to that because enforcement should be, should be neutral and it's yeah. based on getting more money for the, for the police organization. And that's similar to the red light camera uh, revenues? Revenue, red light cameras go into the general revenues as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and recently there's been uh, some use of uh, uh, cameras for speeders to capture speeders. And I'm wondering if that's a provincial or that's going to be a municipal uh, run. I, I believe I, I'm out of it, but I believe that will be same as the red light as, um, as the red light cameras that with the fines would come into the general. Yeah. They'll, they'll have to process it through the local POA courts, which are paid for by the region. Yeah. But those courts aren't independent. Okay. Well, uh, listen, Ken, I, I just want to, we're going to wrap it up here. And I really appreciate your time and thoughts on providing us with some of the uh, contextual historical background as to what's, what's been uh, happening in Waterloo Region of Policing. Because as we know, it's, uh, it's certainly a, a topic of uh, interest uh, in, the, in the community and uh, over the past year. And uh, I think it's going to um, be a, a very interesting topic over the next few years as we look at upcoming budgets and what's going to be happening in that process because as we know um, budgets dictate everything about a community if it's not in the budget uh you know it's not really going to happen in your community so really that's where if anything's going to happen it's going to happen there so we'll see how that goes but again thanks again for uh, sharing your thoughts about what's going on in the past and providing us with some of that background great good to be with you okay all the best and we'll thanks. meet up again soon yeah okay bye-bye cheers Okay, so uh, thank you again for uh, listening to another edition of the Old Grey Mayors. Uh, my name is Rob Deutschman. I want to thank my friend Alex Kinsella for uh, putting it all together and making the magic happen. And you, the listener, for taking the time to listen. And again, if you have any issue or topic or person that you think uh, would be an interesting interview, please feel free to reach out. I'd be happy to make it all happen. 